If you have your Bibles here with you, uh, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12, verses 16 onwards. Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to touch base with you just now. Uh, the words will be on the screen, but it's always wonderful to have your own Bible, whether it's a printed version or an electronic version. Follow with me, underline, take notes. Uh, you get to go home, read it for yourself as well. Um, before we get stuck into the series, just to tell you where we're going as a church. As of next week, we're starting a brand new series on prayer. And we as a leadership are so excited about this series. I do believe it's not going to be just one of those series that comes and goes, but it's going to actually lodge in the heart of the church. And I do uh, absolutely believe that God is going to do something new in us as a church, moving us further and moving us deeper into His heart as we grow in prayer as a church. So I am um, so excited. So please join with us from the first week uh, a series that's going to be five weeks um, starting next week. So we are on our fourth and final week of our series called God and Money. Now, if you've joined us for the first time today, you might be wondering why I ruin a good sermon by talking about money. And I understand money is a bit of a difficult topic to talk about in church. And if anything, we as Riverside, and if you've been here for any while, you would know this, we've probably underspoken about, about money. When we look at the scriptures, we see Jesus talking about money a lot because he knows what we don't always know, but he knows that money and our possessions is probably the chief contender for the place of being number one in our hearts. And for that reason, Jesus is regularly speaking about money, not, not so much on the how to and the what to, but really, I mean, he gets there and we're going to go there today, but speaking about the place that it has in our hearts. And therefore, that's what we've been doing for the first three weeks of this series. And I just want to touch base with some of the big ideas that have come out of the first three weeks of this series. In week one, we learned, and Bianca prayed that this morning, um, we learned that everything we have belongs to God. And of course, we said, but, but God, I, I mean, I'm the one who's got the bond in my house, and I'm the one who got the degree, and I'm the one who worked hard, or my dad was the one who came into South Africa with 10 rand in his pocket and built up the business, and um, it was him. And God would say, but, but who gave you the opportunities? And, and who gave you the um, intellectual abilities? And who gave you the giftings? And who gave you the resources? And we soon discover everything we have belongs to God, which brings us to the related point from week one, is therefore we are not owners, we are stewards. The best way for us to relate to our possessions is God is owner, we are stewards. We are managing what God entrusts into our hands. So week two, we discovered that money is good, not bad. Because sometimes there's an overreaction to certain streams and things happening in the church. Sometimes we can talk about money like it's this evil thing, which is give away. And of course, giving is a godly thing, but money itself is good, not bad, but it is not God. Week two, we discover that money is not God. It is the chief contender for God in our hearts. And if we're alert to that, it means that we're going to be uh, avoiding things like greed and pride. And then week three, we realize that we need to have an eternal view of our possessions. Not just thinking about today, not just thinking about three months time or three years time or even 30 years time. But we need to be thinking about 30 million years time. And, for, and, and one of the reasons we need to do that is because when Jesus comes back, he is going to reward those who are faithful. 
Not only with our possessions, with all of what He entrusts to us, but He will reward those who are faithful. But number two, He will also hold accountable those who are not faithful. This is not a matter of salvation. You don't get kicked out of heaven for not being faithful, but we do lose our reward. And the reason why I kind of taking a bit of time to talk through this is because nothing I say today makes any sense unless we've got these right in our minds and our hearts. Because these are the heart issues. These are the perspectives that we have on God, possessions, ownership, stewardship, reward, judgments. So we need to get those things right first. And if you've missed any of these, not because Craig and I are excellent preachers, I just really believe God's got something to say to our hearts first. Because today we are going to get very practical and we are going to answer some questions that we regularly have around generosity, church, and giving. And I got thinking again, why is it so difficult for us to talk about money in a church context? And I think part of that question is answered. I think we're very quick to blame other pastors and other churches and other things. But I think Jesus shows us first and foremost, it is really a big idolatry issue for many of us. And for that reason, we can blame other people, but maybe God is speaking to us about idolatry issues in our own hearts. So it gets difficult to talk about idols. Right? Idols don't like being dethroned. We love our idols. So that's one reason why it's so difficult to speak about money in a church context. But number two, it's because, yes, some of you have had incredibly difficult and sad experiences when it comes to money. I know some people have been told, you know, if you give a hundred rand, God will give you, you know, 10,000 rand back. And, and, and not just kind of spiritual return, but financial return. I know one church was sued for promising that to their people. And the investment didn't work out the way it was planned. So some people have even told that if you give, then God's going to give. All right? Maybe some of you have been told, well, well, if you give, and if you give to one of these online TV shows, if you give to this pastor, if you give to that church, then you'll be healed. Or then your life will be cool. Or then everything will be easy. So again, we kind of treat God like a giant uh, ATM. Like if I give, then I'm going to get the following out of God. And of course, many people have found themselves very disappointed. I've even heard of people who have had difficulty in their life or maybe ongoing uh, um, a disease or something that's just not going away and then they've been given this uh, counsel from church leaders. It's because you're not tithing. That's why God is putting this in your life. And then of course there's the stuff that makes the headlines. And it saddens my heart and I know it saddens your heart. And for that reason, when we talk about money in church, for all those reasons together, it makes for a very difficult space. It admittedly is very difficult for us to stand up here and talk about it, which is why we need to make sure we're anchoring our heart in God's word here. But I want to suggest to some of you this morning, before we move on, even for one second, if you have some sense of brokenness, some sense of unforgiveness, some sense of disappointment, some sense of hurt because of something you've seen in another church, something that's happened to you, something that's happened to a previous family member. I mean, I know personally of people who have been kind of, they would say they've been manipulated by these doctrine and they've literally given away tons of money under false assumptions. And I, and I understand that maybe some of your stories are very sad. But I want to suggest to you this morning that maybe this morning is the morning where you start asking God to bring healing to that space. 
Because like with all issues in our life, be it prayer, be it church, be it work, be it family, be it marriage, be it our sexuality, money is a discipleship issue. And therefore, if we come as stewards to God, we're saying, God, what do you say? And it's so hard when we're always acting out of our brokenness. We're always acting out of our hurts. We're always acting out of our pains. So before I go in for one second, I just want to pray for those of you who are sitting there and you know that this is a touchy issue because of a hurt that, you've experienced, that you have experienced. So Father, I ask that you begin a new journey with many people here this morning. Father God, you're calling us to a life of abundance. You're calling us to live a life of freedom, a life of joy. And Father God, like in so many other areas of our discipleship journey, I want to ask that you begin bringing healing to people here this morning, especially in areas of disappointment and pain and difficulty, God. I pray this is something you do. And then that we can come before you and start asking, now, Lord, what do you say? And we actually live and we choose to live this walk in freedom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've already mentioned that Jesus speaks a lot about money. In fact, he talks more about money than anything else. So turn with me to one of the times where he does, Luke chapter 12, verses 16. Luke chapter 12, verses 16. And I'm just going to read a few verses. So he tells them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my bonds and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you can just see him. He's like kind of imagining the scenario where he's got these bonds, giant bonds full of grain. He's just almost salivating at the idea. And I'll say to myself, well, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, before I read on, I just want to stop there and say, guys, isn't this like the ultimate dream? Isn't this what everyone's trying to get you to want? And if you're really honest with yourself, I know in church we know what the right things to say. But if we are really honest with ourselves, isn't this what we really want? Retire young with full bonds, take life easy and be merry. Now again, we heard a couple of weeks ago, money's not bad and, and saving for our future is not a bad thing. It's not this or that. It's not things or God. It's about what's before. It's our things before God. It was God before things. So we've already established that. Uh, I remember a sermon by John Piper, probably his most famous sermon ever preached. He spoke at the Passion Conference. I think it was 2005, big worship conference, speaking to thousands and thousands and thousands of young adults. And probably the most memorable thing he has ever said was something along these lines. I should have probably just played his clip better than me. But um, he just spoke about two stories that kind of came into his field of vision during the course of that week, just before he spoke. The one story was of two missionary ladies. They were in their 80s on the mission field in a country, I believe, in Africa. And he had just heard of their death. They were in a car crash. Uh, so it wasn't persecution per se, but uh, they were in a car crash and they died. So two single ladies in their 80s. Now the world will say that's a horrible life. The world will say that's a failure to be single in your 80s, poor, looking for something to keep you busy, right? 
So that's the one story. The other story was a story he read about, I think he said it was in Reader's Digest, about this family that retired in their 40s, and, and they were spending the rest of their life on their yacht collecting seashells. Now, now again, isn't that what this parable is saying? Isn't that what we want? Don't we look at that and kind of secretly wish, I, I wish I could be from 45 years old traveling around the world in my yacht collecting seashells. But as we heard last week, there's going to come a time when God is going to call us to accounts. And then the question becomes, which life truly was wasted? Out of the sermon came a book I really encourage you to buy. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. Because God's going to go up to these ladies who were um, in some ways just, uh, no, they weren't famous, nobody knew them, and, uh, but they were faithful to their death. And God's going to say to them, well done, good and faithful servants. You are faithful and I'm going to trust much more to you. And then he's going to go to this other family and say, well, what do you have to show for your life? And they're going to say, look at my seashell collection, God. And and that's what I think is going on here in this parable. We're going to be standing before God, and that's what continues to happen. So let's read from verse 20. But God said to him, this is the time of account. God says to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then he will get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. So as we start going where angels fear to tread, which is talking about generosity, talking about giving, talking about church, talking about tithing, I just kind of want to warn you on the front end, uh, this morning is going to be more teachy than preachy. And what I mean by that is going through quite a lot of content, um, just trying to wrap our mind around what the Old Testament says, what the New Testament says. And um, because I know, I know you're taking notes and I know you're writing down all the scripture references and you're going to go home and read them for yourself and look at your notes and you're going to be in a small group to talk about this further. So just to prepare you, we're going to move at quite a pace this morning. All right, so are you ready? Are you ready to go? Let's see what God has to say to us this morning. So in the Old Testament, as we talk about this, um, a big word that even if you're not religious, you're probably familiar with the concept of tithing. So tithing in the Old Testament was, in fact, the word literally means one-tenth. It was the practice, the regular practice of giving one-tenth of one possessions towards the temple. Now, this met two basic categories of needs. The first category of needs that the tithe of the Old Testament fulfilled was that of uh, providing for the priests and the Levites. You see, these were people in full-time service to the temple, and in that way, full-time service to the people of Israel. Um, Priests and Levites were prohibited from owning land. Now, it's not so much about ownership, but if you live in an ancient culture and you aren't allowed to own land, that means that you cannot get an income. You can't grow your grain. You can't grow wheat. You can't have sheep and cows and cheese and milk and meat. So therefore, if you can't own land, you don't get to earn anything. So these guys were not allowed to. uh, They were prohibited from owning land, which meant they had to depend on the tithe. So as the tithe came in, they were looked after. That's kind of area number one that the tithe provided for. The second area that the tithe provided for was for the temple ministry. Just everything that needed to happen in the life and the ministry of the temple. 
But not only do we get that tithe, it's kind of the standard tithe that maybe we think about or we're most familiar with, the 10% tithe. On top of that, not instead of that, on top of that was a festival tithe. And the festival tithe was, you know, people bringing in, I'm not going to get stuck into the detail, but people would bring this tithe in and they have a big fat party. I like that idea. Uh, we call it a bring and bra, okay? So, um, <laughs> so that's the festival tithe. And again, um, God loves parties. And then you also got the charity tithe. Every three years, God would encourage everyone to bring the charity tithe. And that would be to provide for the poor and the priests and the Levites and, uh, and the widows and the orphans. Now, if you add that up, you move way beyond 10% of the Israelites giving. You, you get quick, very quickly to over 23%. And then over and above that, again, you can go look for it yourself. All the references are there. Israel was still called to be generous in a very ongoing basis. So, for example, you get the practice of gleaning. Now, the practice of gleaning was if you did have a farm, uh, the encouragement was don't harvest everything. Just leave the edges, leave the margins. And in those evenings, the poor would come through and they would take what potentially could have been profit. They would come and they would be served by you and they would glean the fields. And there's a whole lot of other practices that over and above these other ties, just be generous, allow for gleaning, look after the poor, look after the poor in your family, look after the poor around you. And that's kind of how it worked in the Old Testament, a very kind of holistic life and view of generosity. Now in church, most people don't have an issue with the Old Testament. People have the question, but what does that mean for us today? We're now in the New Testament. I mean, Stephen, are you going to be calling us to give 23.3% of our income away? And no, I'm not going to do that. Just letting you know on the front end. But the big question becomes, so what do we do with the practice of tithing in the New Testament? And like with all theological questions, you get two answers. The one says yes, the one says no. All right, so some people say, you know, yes, the church should still be tithing in this very legalistic way. It should be 10% plus. And um, when preachers preach on it, they preach from the Old Testament, which is quite ironic. Um, those who say no would say, no, no, but, but we're under grace. We're under grace and therefore we don't need to be tithing. That's an Old Testament, a Testament legal thing. Um, and, and, and we're under grace, so now I don't need to be giving. Now, I'm going to spend a few minutes getting a little bit geeky, getting a little bit theological. Uh, so again, just come with me on this one, because I think whether we're talking about giving or anything else, we need to understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. You see, when you get a law in the Old Testament, generally there was a principle in the law that we actually see carried through in the New Testament. The law itself is done away with. Jesus, in many ways, depending on the law, fulfills it. He's the perfect one. He did what we cannot do. Um, the law, by the way, if you look at all the laws and look at the Ten Commandments, the law cannot save you. The law can only tell you where you're going wrong. Right? And then Jesus would come and do what the law cannot do, which is save you and empower you to live according to these principles which find continuity into the New Testament. For example, very familiar Old Testament law, do not murder. Jesus comes along in the New Testament and he doesn't say, no, 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 look, we're under grace, so we're not going to worry about that one anymore. No, he says, actually, I'm going for the heart. In fact, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. Old Testament law, very familiar with, do not commit adultery. Oh, yeah, we're in the new covenant. We don't have to obey the law. Jesus goes for the heart. And he says, hey, yeah, 
do not commit adultery, but even if you look at a woman lustfully, you are guilty of idolatry. You see the continuity. And then Jesus comes in, he gives himself to us to enable us to not only not kill people, but to love our enemies, right? So the standards are actually raised in the New Testament primarily because it's an issue of the heart. God comes in, he gives us a new heart. He gives us his spirit in order to help us live out of freedom according to these principles which had their origins in the Old Testament. And the same is true of giving. So we're going to find continuity between some of these Old Testament practices and some of these New Testament practices. So how is this spoken about in the New Testament? Well, what's very interesting is that the very same reasons why the Israelites were called to tithe in the Old Testament, while tithing is not often spoken about in that sense of the word in the New Testament, the principles carry through. So remember, the first reason was for the priests and the Levites who were not able to earn an income. Well, in the New Testament, we actually see that one of the reasons we are called to give and to tithe is to provide for modern-day priests and Levites. Please never call me a priest. Please never call me a Levite. Uh, What I mean by that is people in the New Testament who give themselves fully to the work of the ministry. These are pastors, these are interns, these are missionaries, these are people who go full-time into some sort of social justice, kingdom-orientated career, and God is saying we are to be providing for them in the New Testament. So look at 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the corn. And the worker deserves his wages. Now, you must understand, this is weird for me to stand up and start talking about my salary. And of course, maybe you've seen some incredible extremes. I've heard, unfortunately, more often than not, I don't know, we pay the pastor next to nothing to keep him humble. As if pastors are the only people who need to be humble in this world, right? Literally, guys retiring with next to nothing. The other extreme is, I mean, I literally knew of a pastor who wanted to build a house and he wanted to build the biggest house in South Africa. All right, so we've seen this extreme and and we would reject that and we've seen this extreme and I don't think that either reflects biblical wisdom. So this is kind of a weird conversation to be having with weird extremes. And again, maybe we've passed judgments on some of the things that we've seen. Um, So we really need to be wise. But uh, what we see is that Paul is saying, no, we need to be looking after the modern day priests and Levites. In fact, um, I heard someone say, well, you know, Paul was a tent maker. So if Paul was a tent maker, surely all of our full-time church employees should be tent makers, meaning bivocational work. And what we actually see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for not supplying his needs. And he actually refers to some of this temple system, not as a way of legalistically carrying that through to the New Testament, but he says there are principles that are being applied over there that need to have been applied amongst you, Corinthian church. And he actually rebukes them for not looking after him and his needs. Now, I know, I know in churches and NGOs, salaries are not sexy, All right, so again, I I, I know, I know, I know, I know, and you know it, and I've chatted to pastors, I've chatted to church members of all sorts of denominations. When the financial statements go on the screen, the first place everyone looks is salaries, right? 
I know it, you know it, and you're like, oh, why do we need to do that? I mean, not only the church, it happens at NGOs, where people are happy, oh, I'm happy to pay for 100 toilets, and that's fantastic, pay for 100 toilets. But we're not happy to help the NGO with our cash, and sometimes good NGOs are closing down because while there's 100 toilets to be installed, there's no one to do it. And the same principle is applied in a church. So forget pragmatism. This is a biblical principle. We need to make peace with. And I said this at our, and just give me a few minutes on this one. I said this at our GRM at the beginning of the year. Um, there are certain costs when it comes to running a church that are an absolute pain in the neck. Paper and pens and office rents and stuff like that. I mean, it's just hard to see kingdom value when we need to pay for those things. It's a bit of a necessary evil. But as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the salaries of our people in our church, let me tell you, if you haven't figured it out already, they are worth their weight in gold. Every single one of our full-time church members have been offered jobs, both secular and non-secular elsewhere. Could be earning way more. No one goes into the ministry for the paycheck. Let me tell you that. But what they do and, and the equipping that they do and the way they give themselves and the hours that they work and the heart that they give in, they are worth their weight in gold. And I feel so much peace when I see that little salary section on our financial statements. And again, I believe that reflects also the heart of what we're seeing coming through the scriptures here. So, the first principle is providing for modern day priests and Levites. The second principle, remember the Old Testament, was for the work and the ministry of the temple. And in the same sense, uh, we, by giving, provide for the work of the ministry. 2 Corinthians 9 verses 12 says, This service that you perform, now if you just go read a few verses before, Paul's encouraging them to be generous and to be giving. So he says, This service, this generosity that you perform, is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also over, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. See, this verse is saying that when we give, we are meeting the needs of ministries. We are meeting the needs of God's people. We are enabling ministry to happen. We are enabling the gospel to be preached. We are enabling people to be reached. We are enabling something that goes far beyond what happens between four walls on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. And therefore, as the gospel goes out, as people experience the love of God, as you are equipped and you go into your workplace and you're able to pray for people and live out the gospel with confidence and, and speak the gospel with confidence, other people all over the world are therefore empowered to give thanks to God because of what happens in the life of any local church. So this raises the really prickly question. So, so must I give? Must all the giving be towards my local church? Is that, is that how it works here? Or do I just get to decide where I want it to go? Now, we've already established that both in the Old and the New Testament that our giving is there to enable and provide for priests and Levites or modern day priests and Levites, um, those in full-time mission. We've also understood that in the Old Testament, it provides for the work of the of the temple, as well as in the New Testament, the work of the ministry. But over and above that, we understand the principle that if the primary institution for God's kingdom on earth in the Old Testament was the temple, the primary New Testament institution for God's work on earth is the church. 
Now, when we say the church, don't just think me and Craig and people on stage. It's us. And the way this body is empowered to work with leaders leading and servers serving and teachers teaching and equipping happening. So we are able to go out into this world and do something with our faith. The way this organism works, that is, as J.D. Green, we quote this often, he says, the church is God's plan A for the world. Again, don't just think what happens on a Sunday. Think what God's people have been doing for centuries, bringing God's love to the world around us. We also see that in the Old Testament, funding itinerant rabbis, you know, we can call them guest preachers, guest speakers, and they'd often come and stay in someone's home, looking after the poor. Um, these, what this was in the Old Testament, over and above these more standard ties that we've been speaking about. And in the New Testament, we actually see, for example, in Acts 2, Acts, 2, Acts 4, we see that the people coming, they don't give their money to their pet projects. They take their money and they put it at the feet of the officers of the church trusting that the officers of the church will enable ministry to happen, enable that church to be empowered to do what God is calling that church to do. And if again you go to those pastures, you'll see over and above that, they were sharing their positions. Over and above that, they were seeing needs and meeting them. And I also believe, you see, we heard last week, you know, where your treasure is, your heart is too. Your heart is invested where your money goes. Right? You invest in the stock exchange or Bitcoin or whatever else is going on. Man, every single day, you're just checking those, those lines. And are they going up or going down? You want to know and you're taking extra time out of your schedule to see what is happening to your money. Your heart goes where your money goes. And by us giving to our local churches, that's one of the many dozen ways that we are saying, this is my church, this is my community. I am committed here. My time, my treasure, my talents. I see the kingdom vision. I see what God is doing and I'm all in here. Which leads me to say something quite hard to say. So I want to say it with as much love and humility as possible. If you with good conscience before God, cannot say, I can't give where I'm being fed. I can't give where I'm experiencing community. I can't give where I'm experiencing uh, being equipped. I can't give where I see God is at work and I don't even know if God is at work here. Find a church where you can. Find a church where you can give with a clear conscience, where you can go all in and you can say, wow, God is at work here and I want to be part of what God is doing here. And if that is Riverside Community, that is awesome. Jesus actually picks up on this point. In fact, it's the only time the New Testament talks about tithing. This is what he says in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. This is like, woe to you, pastors, elders and deacons. The religious leaders of the time. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus is actually mocking the legalistic practice of these religious leaders. Oh, I've got 40 mint leaves, so I'm going to cut four and give them to the church. 
and I'm going to take out, I'm going to count everything out. And, and once I've done it, I'm going to feel okay that now I have done my job. And Jesus mocks him for that. And you're saying, what? Why is Jesus mocking them for being so generous, giving one-tenth of all they own? And Jesus says, here's the problem. And he actually addresses two issues. The one issue is, hey, I've given my tenth, and now I get to live how I want. I've done my thing. God hopefully saw that check signed. Hopefully God saw the EFT happen. And hopefully he's pleased with me, so I get to carry on with my life. That's the one issue he addresses. The other issue is actually, you know, I, I love justice. I love mercy. I want to see the poor fed and I want to see, you know, things happen. So I'm going to ignore this and I'm going to do that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Listen, when you see needs, you need to meet them. When you see issues of justice and mercy, you need to get stuck in. You need to roll up your sleeves. You need to be all in. And while you're doing that, don't forget the former, which is to tithe. For many people, this is a generational thing. On average, and again, I'm not judging, but just on average, former generations were very happy to kind of pay their tithe and get on with life. On average, the younger generation are so passionate about seeing justice and mercy. But on average, these generations fall into one of these two ditches. And Jesus speaks to both of us by saying, do the former without neglecting the latter. We put it the other way. So how do we move forward? Stephen, okay, you know what? Uh, you're talking a lot and uh, just, just give me the bottom line. Really, give me a percentage and then I'll figure out if we can make that happen and then I can go home and, you know. And here's the problem is that, again, we're under grace and God wants the heart first and He wants everything to come from the heart. So I'm going to rather just speak about six values, six values that are going to inform our New Testament giving and generosity. All right, so I'm going to help to use two verses to help us find these values. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. So the first value I want to speak about is to be intentional. Another word for that is to plan. All right, we're actually convinced of what God is calling us to. We're convinced of the mission of, church, of the church. We're convinced of the community that God is calling us to. We want to worship God. We want to be all in, not only with our money, but we want to be all into the kingdom. And therefore, I need to plan for that. Because failure to plan means planning to fail, right? You've heard that. So on Sunday, if the bag starts coming around and you open your wallet to see what's left, that's called tipping God, not worshiping God. So if we're going to take this seriously, like with all things, if we want to pray, if we want our marriage to honor God more, we want our family to honor God more, and if we want to honor God with our finances, we need to be intentional. The second one is to be regular, to establish a, and follow a pattern. Some of you are paid weekly, and it makes most sense to say to God, God, here's what I feel like you're calling me to give, so I'm going to follow this pattern. For me, it's monthly. It's the first thing that happens every single month. And I, here's just my little practice, and I know Bianca shared with us before, is uh, whether it's a check or whether something goes in the offering bag or whether you, know, you type in EFT, just, God, I'm, I'm worshiping you with this. Here's my first and my best. 
I'm, in, I'm intentional about this. I'm going to be regular about this. And as I, God, I just pray that as I give, I honor you, I worship you, and I pray that you would use this and produce great fruit in the kingdom of God. This is a spiritual thing. So make it a spiritual thing. So we're going to be intentional, regular. And number three, we're going to be proportional. It says here, each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. For me, and again, this is me, and this is how I do try theologically manage the Old and the New Testament. For me, I like to use that 10% as a guide. I like to say, listen, if you don't know where to start, just why not start thinking about 10%? So Stephen, I, I, you know, I haven't been doing this at all. I don't know how I'm going to go from this to giving 10%, and that's okay. Maybe start with 2%. We're going to talk about coming before God, allowing Him to speak to us. Start where you can, under conviction, in freedom, with joy. Start there and start creating headroom in your finances in order to be rich towards God, as this parable encourages us to. So I know for some people, they start at five and then in a few years' time, they get to six and a few years' time, they get to seven and then eventually they move straight past 10% as God increases their ability to create and generate wealth and they're able to be rich towards God in many ways. So we're gonna be intentional, regular and proportional. The next three are gonna come from the following verse, 2 Corinthians 9 verses 67. We're talking kingdom values here, not the law. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man, woman, should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think the kingdom, first kingdom value coming out of this verse is that we are going to be known for being generous. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have many stats for this in the South African churches, but we do from the American churches. On average, less than 5% of the American church give 10% of their income towards the kingdom. And on average, the average American Christian is giving 2.5% of their income away, which you might say, well, that's wonderful. Well, it's actually slightly lower than what the average non-believing American is giving towards NGOs and charities. And what we see, and we're going to look at Jesus just now, what we see is generosity. All right, you know your limitations. And by the way, God knows your limitations. But what does it mean to be generous in this space? This is not about rands and cents. God measures our contribution against our capacity. He knows your capacity. And He knows the other guy's capacity. And he doesn't measure you against him or her against her. He looks at you and he says, what does worship look like for you in this situation? What does generosity look like for you in this situation? So for some people, literally being generous will be 50 bucks a month. For others, it's going to be going way past the 10% as God has empowered you to be rich towards him in the kingdom. So number one, we're going to be generous. Well, this is actually number four. Uh, kingdom value number five, we're going to be prayerful. It says each one should come before God and decide in his heart, not Steve said 10% or 8% or 23.3%. No, no, no. I'm going to be prayerful. I'm going to come before God because I know my heart is inclined to always take the easy way out. Right? 
So I'm going to ask God to speak to my heart so that when I give, I believe I've heard from Him. And I have a conviction for my life and my stewardship. I've heard from God. God has spoken clearly. And from that space, I'm going to give. So we're going to be prayerful. And finally, we're going to be cheerful. Stephen, how the heck are we going to be cheerful when, you know, after this sermon? <laughs> well, God's going to do a great work in our hearts. He says we not should do this under reluctance or compulsion. In fact, if that's where your heart is at, don't sign the check. I know my finance team just wrote something down, speak to me about after the service. But if we're going to be giving because Stephen said, or you're feeling guilty under compulsion, reluctance, that is not the state of heart God wants in us. The cheerful giver though, the cheerful giver knows that God is first in their heart. They are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Their eyes are being opened to the kingdom of God. They are willing to put the kingdom of God first, knowing that God will make all of these other things come to us. They are seeing and experiencing the joy that comes from knowing Jesus and worshiping Jesus and sacrificing for Jesus and obeying Jesus. And the joy and the hope and the faith and the love that He gives us far outweighs anything else. And we see what happens happens in the kingdom and we see what is enabled in the kingdom and that is what defines a cheerful giver which comes back to the heart and asking God to move us into that space which means putting him and his kingdom first in the book of 2 Corinthians Paul is speaking to a church real group of people in Corinth and he's trying to mobilize some finances. He's, try, he's doing some fundraising. He's trying to encourage generosity and giving into the kingdom. And he does what we always try and do. We never want you as a church to walk out with 10 things to do. We always want to put that in the greater scheme of things, which is what has Jesus done? Because the gospel is done. A works gospel is do. And if we have genuine faith, says the book of James, we will do not to somehow get God to be pleased with me, but because I see what he has done. And therefore, even in the space of generosity, Paul points towards the gospel and the cross. And in the middle of his arguments, he says, though he was rich, he became poor. He gave up everything in order that we through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus knew by staying up in heaven, we would die spiritually poor. But by giving up that power and by giving up that comfort and by giving up that space of perfect love, perfect authority, and by becoming a servant, even a servant to death, says Philippians 2, he's able to forgive us our sins, welcome us into his family, make us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, point towards an eternal inheritance, open our eyes to the kingdom of God. And in that way, as we experience his love and his faith and his hope, we are rich. See, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. And therefore, what I want to encourage you is, I, I don't know, I'm not going to give you now just what you should do with the sermon. I'm going for the heart. 
When God speaks to you about what is a cheerful, joyful, prayerful offering for you in your space, in your environment for 2018, and that's going to change next year, um, it's not just to be like those Pharisees. Okay, I've done my bit, I've signed the check, and now I get back to my selfish life. Is how do we be like Jesus, who gave himself? So how do I see my stewardship as being generous into the kingdom and pouring my life into the kingdom? When I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm thinking about marriage and family and kids and budgets, how do I see all of that as I am all in for the kingdom of God? And when God does empower you for greater wealth, And when God does give you greater platforms for power, how do we do what Jesus did with his power? And that is to leverage it to serve and save others. That's the Christian life. I know people often say that the last part of a Christian to be converted is their wallets. At the end of the day, God wants our hearts And as we're convinced of his cross, we're going to live it out in very practical ways. And this is one of them. So I want to pray for us, Father. God, you're jealous for our hearts. And anything that takes your place in our hearts, not only are you jealous for, but you know that we are poorer for it. When we try to get meaning and purpose and value from anything else that is not you, we are the ones who suffer. We are the ones who are disappointed. But Father God, when you give yourselves to us and we experience you, the fullness of life, the fullness of salvation, when we in freedom follow you all in, God, you want that kind of life. You want the kind of life that is that light to the world and salt of the earth. And God, I believe you've been speaking to us now. Maybe not so much about rands and cents, but the state of our heart. And God, I pray that you'd keep us there. As we draw close to you, God, would you draw close to us? Would our eyes be open to greater joy, a greater vision of your kingdom? And yes, Lord, would our stewardship follow? Would our stewardship be a sign of our faith? and our love and our prioritization of you and your kingdom. God, I do pray for those who are, and I just know, speaking to any group of people in South Africa, there are people who might even receive this word with condemnation. Just the difficulty of our circumstances, the reality of poverty, the reality of insurmountable debts. And God, again, even for those people, I pray that you'd, Give yourself to them fully. They would know your love. They would know your power, even in the midst of strife and trial and difficulty. And that even there, you'd be speaking gently to them, not asking them to compare themselves with anyone else, as we heard last week. But just in their situation, what are you calling them to as a sign of their love to you? Father God, I do pray for provision for those who are in a difficult space. I do pray for job opportunities to be created. I do pray for raises 
that weren't sought for. God, I do pray for um, new opportunities that you are going to generate, Lord Jesus. But only after that you've won our hearts. And Father God, as you do bless families, we are able to be a blessing into your kingdom and be rich towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.